Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 213 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Ghostbusters. This reboot of the classic comedy from 1984 stars four women as an all-new ghost-busting team and has been controversial with many fans. And this will involve spoilers, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by four guests. So first up, we've got Angela Watercutter, who you may remember from our panel on Jupiter Ascending back in episode 138, and our panel on Penny Dreadful back in episode 210. She's a writer and editor for Wired, and she's also the main person behind the scenes who helps get our posts up on Wired.com each week. And you should all go check out her recent articles, No Matter How Good It Is, The New Ghostbusters Can't Win, and we love you, Kate McKinnon, and thanks for saving Ghostbusters. So, Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Then next up, we've got Carmen Maria Machado, who you may remember from our panel on The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy back in episode 177. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers' Workshop, and her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, and Best Horror of the Year. Her debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, is forthcoming from Grey Wolf Press. So, Carmen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Jennifer Cross. She's the lead organizer of Just Write Chicago, which is Chicago's largest writing group dedicated to providing a safe, inclusive space for writers of all genres and levels. Her article, We've Made It to Magrathea, appeared in Queers Destroy Science Fiction, and she's also spoken about diversity and representation at conventions such as C2E2 and WISCON. She can also be seen at various conventions fire dancing while cosplaying women of color, and you can read her blog Outside the Box over at notyourexpectation.wordpress.com. So, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Carol Pinchevsky. She's a writer for Blaster and Geek and & Sundry, and has also been a writer for Forbes and MacLife. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time Out New York, PC Gamer, and Lightspeed Magazine. And she's also interviewed celebrities such as Neil Gaiman, Matt Smith, Daniel Craig, and Lucy Lawless. So, Carol, welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, and so the first thing I just want to talk about is the original Ghostbusters, because the original Ghostbusters was a very important movie to me. It was actually the first movie that I went to see multiple times in the theater. I think I went to see it about five times in the theater with my dad, and I just have very fond memories of that movie. And so I'm just curious what you guys, how you feel about that original Ghostbusters movie. So uh, let's start off with Angela. What kind of memories do you have about the original Ghostbusters? Um, I don't remember if I saw it in the theater, but I definitely remember that it was in sort of constant rotation in the VCR growing up as a kid. Um, and I believe there is actual photographic proof of this on Wired somewhere that I will, I will send, uh, to anybody who asked, but, uh, I was the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man for Halloween one year, <laughs> um, which equated to, um, putting on my dad's sweatpants and my mom stuffing them with pillows and then painting my face and, you know, making me a little, you know, white hat. Um, it was a great place to stash candy. So yeah, I mean, I definitely had <laughs> sort of a strong, uh, uh, strong affection for that movie growing up. I think like I, I, I rewatched it again recently in the lead up to the new film. And, you know, I'm, I'm not realizing there were a lot of, I guess, for lack of a better term, adult jokes that I probably didn't get when I was, you know, in my trick or treating years. Um, but, you know, I, I've always just had, had such a fondness for that movie and, you know, uh, following, you know, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and all those guys throughout the years, like I, that's still where my, where my head goes is, is those actors in that, and the, and those performances. So yeah, I mean, I had the, I had the same thing, the sort of mix of comedy and, you know, sort of sci-fi and stuff, uh, really kind of stuck with me and probably informed a lot of my future interests as an adult. So yeah. <laughs> um, and how about Carol? Are you a big Ghostbusters fan? Yeah, and I have been since the beginning. Uh, I got to see it in New York City on opening weekend, and I I can assure you the entire audience was just screaming <laughs> with laughter from the beginning to the ending. I mean, people absolutely loved it. I couldn't stop laughing as well. I was I really was rolling on the floor laughing, but it it affected me in uh, one other particular way. I I had. A mad crush on Egon, <laughs> absolute mad crush on him all throughout high school because because of Ghostbusters. So yeah, I was I was very very sad when the actor died. Really. Yeah, yeah. Well, how about Jennifer? What's your Ghostbusters background? 
Um, well, it's actually pretty, it's, I guess I'm looking at it from a different perspective because I was born in the 80s. And so Ghostbusters is one of the first nerdy movies that I saw as a child. And as a child, there were a lot of things that went way over my head. <laughs> so when I went back to watch it as an adult, I said, holy shit, how did my super conservative parents ever let me watch this? <laughs> um, but still to this day, um, Ghostbusters has become one of those. It's become one of my favorite problematic fandoms because I can laugh at a lot of the jokes still, but I can't let certain aspects of um of the comedy just brush on by um case in point is the first thing we see as bill uh bill murray is dr peter bateman is that he's kind of a predator and leching on one of his students that's really disturbing given the gender and power dynamics set up in the university but that's something that I wouldn't have recognized as a child that I recognize um, as an adult. Overall, I mean, I think, Dave, I quoted you in my email when you asked, would you like to do this podcast? I said, yes, and I'd be terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. <laughs> and that was an Egon quote, by the way. <laughs> Egon, Egon's my boy. All right, I might have to fight you for Egon. I'm just saying. Oh man. <laughs> I'm just I'm just letting you know. I might have to fight you for it. Um but yeah, it's it's I the easiest way to sum it up is Ghostbusters is one of my problematic faves. But I am also a big believer that you can have problematic faves and just because you're criticizing it doesn't mean that you don't love it. So yeah, yeah. Well, well, so Carmen, do you want to uh, pick up on anything Jennifer was just saying there? Sure. Well, I mean, so my experience, uh, so but Ghostbusters came out before I was born. Um, so when I first saw it, not the youngest person here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I didn't see it in theaters. I actually had this very strange experience where I saw it. I saw both movies at a Christmas party that my parents took me to when I was maybe six or seven. Um, and I was in a room with like every other child at the, you know, whose parents were at the party and they just sort of shuffled us into a room and turned on Ghostbusters. But I was too young to understand that it was a comedy and it actually scared the bejesus out of me. And I, I had these, I had, I had nightmares. Um, I, this, in the sequel, somehow my brain my brain like inverted the pink ooze with blood. So like for years I was terrified that like when you turned on the bathtub, like blood would come gushing out of the faucet. Um, and I just sort of nursed these like these strange anxieties. And then I saw it when I was like a teenager and I was like, oh, it's a comedy. <laughs> oh, that makes so much more sense. And then after that, I enjoyed it. And like Jennifer, you know, it's sort of seeing it as an adult, like it's my, I do really enjoy it despite it's, I, I think, very like objectionable sort of sexist um, content and, and yeah. So, I mean, yeah, problematic fave, definitely enjoyed it as an adult, but as a child, <laughs> did, not, did not appreciate it for what it was until much later. Right. Well, I mean, it's funny what you guys are saying about how much Ghostbusters changes when you watch it when you're seven versus when you watch it when you're a teenager or an, an adult. And that was certainly the case for me where, I mean, I had no idea that Dana and, um, Rick Moranis had had sex. And I mean, I had seen the movie like 15 <laughs> times, you know, and then one time I'm just watching and I was like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> well, the the door shuts, I think. So it's kind of implied you don't see them. Have right. And I, but I can remember also saying to my dad, you know, I just thought as a kid, I just thought the Ghostbusters were just the coolest guys in the world. And I can remember I, when I watched the movie, I was 14 or something. And I, I watched and I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I just watched Ghostbusters and the Ghostbusters are kind of losers. And and he's like, yeah, that's like the whole point of the movie. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I just thought they were the most awesome guys as a kid. And it's just so funny. Yeah. How, how, and, and, and like, as, I, I, yeah, as, as Jennifer was saying, there was a point I was like, wait, Peter Venkman's kind of a stalker. You know, it was funny how these like, you know, realizations just come to you as you get older. But it also doesn't take a, it doesn't take away from the story. Now, we're, we're a bunch of writers here, and we can actually appreciate a story with some with questionably moral characters. And for me, the story in the original Ghostbusters 
was much more solid than I thought the story in the new movie was. Did of that. Yo, uh, how about Angel? What do you what do you think about think about that? About the about the how good the story is. I mean, I think it was. I somebody uh, a friend of mine texted me after I saw the movie and was like, "What did you think? And what would you think if you didn't hadn't seen the original?" And I was, you know, the way I was explaining is that the that you know it does sort of lack the story that the original one has. You sort of have to come into it with a little bit of that that knowledge that this world exists. But then I was trying to remember because I was so young seeing the first one, like the the story of, you know, four scientists who tackle ghosts wasn't really realistic to begin with. Um, so, you know, like the, you, there's a whole lot of suspension of disbelief, I think, with the entire the entire franchise. But I mean, the original definitely had a lot more nuance than, you know, than this new one does. I mean, I was thinking about it when I was watching it the other night, like the new one, you, you don't know, like, where do these people live? Like, what were they doing five minutes before we sort of were dropped <laughs> into their lives? You know, like you get a little bit of backstory that, you know, um, uh, that, you know, two of them had been, had worked together on a book about ghosts before and then it had created this rift in their friendship or whatever. But the, um, you know, the Kate McKinnon character, she's just sort of there. You know, she sort of just shows up and she doesn't, you never know a whole lot about what happened with her background. And, um, Patty, the Leslie Jones character, you know, you know that she worked for the MTA, but that's about it. You know, like there's, there's very little, I think, sort of fleshing out of characters, which with comedy kind of just happens, I think, sometimes. But um, but there was definitely a little bit of a lack of, you know, involvement and involved story that ha- happened with the first one that maybe didn't happen so much on this one. And can I be honest, because this is the this was Paul Feig and uh, Feig, Feig, I'm saying his name correctly. Feig, Feig, I think. Thank you. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> a deer, a female deer. All right. Um, <laughs> so because this was Paul Feig and Kristen Wiig, I was expecting a lot more fleshing out of all of the characters because that's what made Bridesmaids so magical mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. So when I sat down and I was watching this and it's, how can I best describe this? So there was an article in io9 this week about their number of summer blockbusters that are just basically setups for sequels and not stories or movies in and of themselves. And that's what, amidst other problems, which I'll get into later, that's what this felt like to me. It felt like that this was just setting up the world. There, there wasn't a cohesive plot to it. There weren't fully fleshed out characters. Now, don't get me wrong. I am on team Kate McKinnon because she had me rolling out of my <laughs> recliner chair. But, you know, it's, I expected more because of the people who were behind it. I expected more, not just because of Feig and the actresses. Uh, I expected it more because of the universe. I He had a wonderful universe to play with, and he just didn't. And uh, I went to a website called Flickering Myth and he said, I, uh, I'd i rather do it as a reboot so I wasn't tied to the old movies. But, you know, so then why do a Ghostbusters movie if you don't want to be tied to Ghostbusters? So, so for me, the movie just didn't really feel that much like Ghostbusters. Well, I mean, Carmen, you posted on Twitter that you really like this movie, right? Do you want to talk I about did. that? Well, I think I sort of fall somewhere in the middle, um, where I, f- I agree that, I mean, yes, Bridesmaids, I mean, I love Bridesmaids, like, I am, it's like one of my favorite comedies, I think it's amazing, and I think if you, compared to Bridesmaids, definitely, you know, this movie fell short in a few sort of character building plot areas. On the other hand, I also don't think this movie lacked, at, like, I feel like that, it's sort of like the first Ghostbusters, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like the first Ghostbusters, I didn't feel like it was like this sort of like any more of a deep sort of character developing you like I, f- I feel like they were sort of operating more or less on the same level in terms of plot and character development i'm compared to, compared to bridesmaids it's absolutely different um but i i mean i did i don't know i felt satisfied by it um not bridesmaids satisfied but i <laughs> but I, d- I did feel really satisfied when i came out of the theater you know i laughed i really liked the characters like i i you know, some of the plot elements are maybe a little flat, but that was okay because it was so campy. Like, it didn't really matter to me. Um, that was just sort of how, I guess, how, I guess why I enjoyed it so much. Uh, the, the one point I made to somebody about that, you know, the sort of depth of it was that, you know, I was like, like, I even thought about the, um, about the Melissa McCarthy movie Spy, where I was just like, 
I don't think that that movie was like as deep on as deep an espionage film as could have been. And I felt like Ghostbusters was as deep a ghost busting film as there could have been. You know, like there's there's a little bit of that, too, where I was like, I'm here for laughs. Like, I wish there would have been more character. But, you know, I still I still enjoyed it. Based on. Yeah, no, based on what you were saying in terms of character building and whatnot, um, I felt like there was a lot more in the original movie, like. Within, I felt like within 30 minutes, I knew who Ray Stantz, Ingotten Spangler, and Pete Vakeman were. And, you know, for all of Pete Vakeman's lechery, there was still, there was a serious scientist underneath all of that, you know, pro- all of those problematic elements. I felt like I know who those guys were. And then when Ernie Hudson came onto the scene, I definitely felt like I knew who he was. In comparison to Leslie Jones's character, I felt like I knew shit about her. I felt like it was, okay, here's, let's put up sassy black, loud girl, cardboard cutout, and add some minor generic details like, oh, she works for the MTA and her uncle runs a funeral home, and she reads a lot of nonfiction. Other than that, I didn't really... I didn't really see the type of depth that uh, Ernie Hudson's character, Winston Zedmore, was allowed to have in the first movie. And even then, I think there was an article in the New York Times where uh, Ernie Hudson had said, uh, was talking about all of the racist crap that he had to deal with. And the guys defended him and tried to help him out. But a lot of his scenes were cut out of the original movie because, oh my God, black man having too much screen time. You don't want that. And the way it looked in the at least the theater cut of the movie, I'm kind of wondering if something similar happened to Leslie Jones, where she actually had more screen time and thus more time to develop a character outside of this horrible, sassy black archetype that I that I felt that I saw. Actually, I'd love to disagree with you. I thought that Leslie Jones was wonderful. I think she was actually the the most well-rounded of the four of them because Holtzman didn't really say very much except talk about technology. And Aaron and Abby, you know, you don't you get some of Aaron's backstory, but almost nothing at all about Abby's. I thought Patty was at least interesting and and i meet mta workers all the time and they have that same exasperated but you know slightly hopeful attitude that she has well there's also the i i wish i could just send you a bunch of articles that because i also read um something in io9 a while back about how paul fig had originally had switched miss melissa mccarthy's and leslie jones's characters because he wanted Leslie Jones's comedic genius to shine. Now, here's part of the problem. There's already, there's already this sort of malicious erasure and denigration about black women being in STEM. So when Paul Feig said that, he intimated that black women can't be educated and funny. And I know that hit hard with a lot of black nerd girls like myself. Because I especially come from a STEM background. I am surrounded by black and other people of color who are nerds. And I was super, I was super hoping to see, you know, Leslie Jones in some sort of STEM background instead of seeing her as the MTA worker. Now, if my guess is that they decided to do that to sort of keep in line with the original movie because Winston Zedmore also comes from a working class background. But again, this is 2016 and Paul Feig said he didn't want to do a reboot. So my issue is, is what is the, what, what is the harm of having Leslie Jones actually be a scientist or Leslie Jones originally being Kristen Wiig's best friend, Abby? I just wanted to add, I mean, I think Jennifer, I mean, I, I agree with Jennifer about um, Leslie Jones's character. And I just, the one thing that they sort of started to do, and I was getting really excited, and then they backed off on it, was they they had her be this, like, huge New York history nerd, right? Like, yes! Was sort of, yes! I was so hoping for that! Yeah. Like, in the beginning, like, she makes the comment, like, oh, this used to be, I can't remember what it was, it was, like, the oldest gambling den, like, in New York. And then at some point she mentioned, oh, that, like, the subway tunnel was under the 
it was like the prison the prison yeah, you know? yeah yeah so she like and i was like oh shit that's awesome she's gonna be like you know she knows new york and then they sort of like yeah i thought she was gonna that. bring my, i thought she was going to bring way more facts yeah than she like did. They, and i i mean i think that what jennifer was saying about maybe stuff got cut i mean that would make sense because that that sort of subplot or that element of her character like got totally dropped and i was that was that did bum me out a lot um and i think it also was I think the other reason it feels a little egregious with her character is that, like, you know, this movie was so many opportunities for so many different kinds of folks. Like, you have an all-female reboot. You have, a, I mean, we'll talk about Kate McKinnon, maybe, I'm assuming, next or or later, not next. Um, but, you know, a queer character, probably. Um, and you have Melissa McCarthy being, like, fat and awesome. And so I, I see the frustration where it's, like, you feel like Leslie Jones' character is sort of being shoved into this box when, like, other characters are getting to go out of their boxes. Um, and that makes sense to me. Yeah, I think uh, the problem I'm having with this reboot is that there were so many missed opportunities. You know, it could have been a story about four women, but you know, oh no, don't, don't, don't intimidate men or exclude men here. So it could have actually been this, this great, great opportunity for storytelling. And it just, it kind of failed. Well, I saw actually, Carol, on your Facebook page, one of your friends said, did they do anything with uh, how women are treated in STEM fields? And you said, not, not really. No. And there, was a, there was a little scene there with Charles Dance and watching Tywin Lannister in a comedy for the first <laughs> time since The Golden Child was just really, really weird to me. <laughs> but, but otherwise, no, there really wasn't. There was no discussion about women in STEM. I mean, I think you're right about STEM, though they did. I, I was appreciated how they sort of touched on the sort of academia, the, the academia element, right? Where like a woman is struggling for tenure and she's like steps outside of this like really narrow box and suddenly has like been fired. Like, I, I mean, that, that was certainly part of it. And yet another problem I had with this movie is that Abby was so very unsympathetic about that. I mean, her her ex-friend, and we don't quite really know what happened between them. It's implied they had a falling out, but we don't know the specifics of it, uh, that she was completely unsympathetic about her friend being so very, very close to tenure. Like, this is a big deal a big deal and she was completely uncaring later she became more caring and concerned but i feel like it was a character flip she seemed the character was you know funny and and brash but not very sympathetic and then later becomes more sympathetic but less funny and brash now that i think about it i mean that might have just been faulty writing as far as abby's character arc but Given their history that is explained between Abby and Aaron, I didn't have trouble accepting Abby's lack of sympathy when, right, when Aaron came back to run, to run to her to basically say, you have to deny that we were ever friends and this book existed. So I, from, that's how I saw it. And from that point of view, I can completely understand why Abby would be unsympathetic to her because they had what, a 20-year history, give or take? And now her supposed friend with whom she's had 20 years of history is asking her to basically erase all of that history for her, for her sake. And Abby's not getting any of it. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I saw it, too. I mean, um, Carmen, you said, did you have something you wanted to say about the Holtzman character? I mean... I mean, I guess it would be changing topics, but I'm all about Kate McKinnon. And and I was really, like, the whole movie, I was like, is it just my, like, big, wishful gay imagination? Or are they playing her really, really queer? Um, and then I read that, indeed, they had intended her to be queer. And I guess they sort of scaled it back because the studio wanted them to scale it back. If I'm, if I'm, I mean, that was just what I was reading this morning. Um Oh, does someone yeah. else know? Yeah, Angela, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so uh, Puffy did an interview with the Daily Beast where they they asked if she was gay, and he kind of gave a grinning, silent nod, I think is what they <laughs> referred to it as. And, <laughs> sure. like, and then he said, I hate to be coy about it, but when you're dealing with studios and that kind of thing, dot, dot, dot. Like it was, so it, he did sort of allude to that. And I, you know, in the, when we were talking about like the Leslie Jones performance, I mean, I felt that same way about 
Kate McKinnon where like, I don't know if it was a missed opportunity, like, because I don't know how much you were going to get that into, you know, into the movie as well. Right. But like at the, at that point where you're like doing the interview and the movie is out, you know, just say like, I was like, you could just say she's gay. It's fine. Like, you know, like right. she could be gay and still do everything that she did in that movie. Like if it's just something that's right. like, no, I mean, you know yeah, what I mean? Kate McKinnon seemed to be the only character who was unapologetic about every aspect of her, which I think yeah. that's why she's gotten so much love. And I mean, like, it truth be told, yeah, I I'm not gonna lie, I'm just kinda like the things that I would do to Kate McKinnon if given consent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I'm not gonna sit up here and lie. Like that amount of confidence, and she owned her geekiness. In a way that, like, you don't get to see in a major motion picture, especially not from a woman, and especially not from a potentially queer woman. It's always been like geekiness has been this thing that you should be ashamed of. And she's like, no, fuck that. I'm a smart inventor. I'm a goddamn engineer. Or as, like she said to her mentor, safety lights are for dudes. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I'm putting that on a t-shirt, by the way. <laughs> are for dudes. Like, there was so yeah. many, um, well, even like the, like the celebration of a Faraday cage. Like, have we ever seen that in a major motion picture from like, no. you know, a female, possibly queer nerd, you know, like, I was like, this, I, I, that was worth my price of admission right there. You gave me the line about safety lights and you celebrated the Faraday cage. Like, that's it. Thank you. Oh, no, no. She could also think of seven things to do with a dead <laughs> one day. I mean. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, the thing that, the thing that kind of I guess frustrated me reading those interviews was that, like, I was thinking about a movie that was really formative for me when I was a kid, which was Fried Green Tomatoes, which came out in 1991 and was the gayest thing I'd ever seen, though I didn't know it at the time. And then, like, years later, rewatched it and was like, oh, my God, like, they're married. Like, they're lesbians and they're married. But, like, the show, and they never actually say it. Like, it's super subtle. And even though they had cut out any explicit lesbian content, like, it won all these, like, awards for, like, representation, you know, like, from the gay community because it was just the gayest movie ever. Um, and and then it sort of frustrated me that now it's 2016, you know? And it, it's weird. It is weird to me that he had to have that, like, wink-nod conversation with an interviewer about her being queer when, like, she was coding really queer and, like, clearly was, and, like, it's 2016, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, missed opportunity, those, that's a phrase that keeps coming up in this conversation, but it's not missed, it's, it's just failed. I mean, I guess I should add that I, I mean, in terms of just in uh, Holtzman's character, Holtzman, like, I think it is and is not. Like, I think it's a missed opportunity to have an openly gay character in a movie, though there was still a gay character in that movie. So for me, it's sort of like, it's this weird, like, it's exactly how I feel about Fried Green Tomatoes, which is like, in some ways, it's like, yeah, it's weird that like, they don't ever like, even though it's, they're both clearly lesbians, or they're both clearly, clearly queer and are with each other and have a child, like, it's weird that they never say it, and they never really show it. But they're still, it's still a gay movie. So it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's this weird sort of middle space where it's like, which I think is true of, like, everyone who sort of fights to see representations of themselves in in anything, where it's like, you kind of take what you can, or at least for me, especially in terms of queer and fat characters and, and Latina women, like, I feel like I sort of struggle. I'm like, I don't get a lot. So I take what, I, you know, I sort of, like, latch on to what I can, which is maybe not an ideal situation, but it's it's how I sort of cope with that. Um, hey, that's the stuff that fanfic is made right. of. I mean, Angela, I wanted to ask you about, you wrote an article before this movie came out called No Matter How Good It Is, The New, Bu- the New Ghostbusters Can't Win. Yes. And I was just wondering if you could talk about now that it's out, to what extent do you think it won or didn't win? I mean, it's honestly like it's doing better than I thought it was in terms of like kind of critical reception. I mean, I don't think, I think it's maybe going to make about $50 million this weekend, which isn't terrible but in the like you know post-marvel world where if you don't you know break somewhere in the hundred million figure somehow it's not the biggest thing ever um but you know the point i was trying to make in that piece was that you know like there and i think we're even kind of touching on it here in in a lot of different ways which is that there's almost too much expectation on a movie like this to please everybody like if you you're never going to please the like you know um the kind of people who are just like girls can't be ghostbusters like that that entire, you know, section of the internet was never going to probably 
have its mind changed by this. Um, and no matter what, it was just always going in with this baggage of nostalgia that we all have about the original, right? Like, you know, you can't not, you can't divorce it from the other thing that you saw, you know, what, 1984. Um, and so you can't not, you know, like I already, I've already seen um, reviews where people were like, oh, well, it's trying too hard to be the old one, or it's not trying hard enough to be the old one, or it's, you know, and like, you can't, because you made, you know, like, I think somebody said earlier, like, well, then why make a Ghostbusters movie? And like, there might be some truth to that, because like, you're either trying to reinvent the wheel, which, you know, you can't fully do all the time, or you're trying to make something so divorced from that, that it's, you know, wholly unique and original, but then it doesn't make sense because it's not part of a canon of, of anything, right? So um, there was there was this thing going into it where I just, you know, it came out of a conversation we were having at the office where I was just like, there's, it's not even that there's, you can't please all the people all the time. You can barely please some of the people a little bit at the time. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there was just, uh, I, I felt a sense going into this, which I think is borne out in some ways and actually done better than I thought it would in others that... Um, that you know there's there was kind of no way for this movie to um to win in a sort of broad sense i mean like i said i think that what we've learned is like it has pleased more people myself included than um that i thought it was going to i mean i always thought i would like it but um but with a lot of a lot of caveats and reservations you know a lot of which we're kind of having here in this discussion because you know i mean it is a lot to put on one movie that's sole purpose is pretty much just to make you laugh you know what i mean like it, there's just so much of that there's so much of that there and there's so much of the baggage. I think one of the things that um, I've been thinking about in this conversation and also I was thinking about as I was watching it was how blatant it was like in the overall plot to address the actual problem that the movie itself had. It was almost meta reverential in that way because, I mean, really, it's about like four very smart women who were basically like trying to prove that what they were doing had value against a guy in a basement who was trying to destroy them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was macrocosmic on many, many levels. And, um, yeah. and like, I thought I was like, when they went, when they first like had that confrontation with him, I was with, I think it was Ronan was his name or whatever, you know, like when they go in there, I was like, wait, are they actually going to talk to a guy who lives in the basement? Yes, they are. <laughs> and like when they're reading the YouTube comments, oh, yeah. one, you know, like the, ain't no bitches gonna bust no ghost. My audience just laughed. Yet, yeah, I appreciated that nod. I feel like they did a, a, a sufficient number of nods toward that element. Yeah. And uh, the, when, uh, um, spoiler alert, I guess, but uh, you know, when, when Bill Murray shows up and uh, uh, Melissa McCarthy has that whole line where Abby has that line where she's just like, oh, well, it's so easy for you to sit there and criticize when you don't really do anything. And I was like, I see what you did there, friends. <laughs> oh, oh um, I definitely, again. yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. That's That was the end of my point. So like, that was what I was, when I wrote that piece earlier this week, it was just sort of like, there's so many things that, you know, this movie is going to have to knock down to, you know, even get acceptance, let alone traction. Um, that, you know, for all of its flaws, and I agree with everybody on the panel that there are many, um, I was, you know, I was like, it did a lot better than I thought it could have, which, you know, I will take that on face value. So that was the point. Well, and, and Angela, I just want to say for people who might be listening to this in the future and are farther away from the all the controversy and don't know exactly what we're talking about. I mean, there was a lot of, like you said, this like girls can't be Ghostbusters um, sentiment. And the first trailer for this movie was the most literally the most disliked movie trailer in youtube history yeah most downvoted youtube trailer of, of all time i think yeah yeah and i thought there was an interesting phenomenon where i think a lot of women saw the first trailer and weren't that enthused with the movie i mean actually harold ramus's daughter wrote an article about this but then once they saw the giant backlash against it it kind of turned seeing this movie into a statement and i was just wondering if any of you guys what you thought of that kind of phenomenon or if you felt that at all no, I, I've always been on board because it's Ghostbusters. Even though the trailer wasn't that exciting, I didn't think it was terrible either. And, and I, I, I have always planned on the seeing it. So, for what it's worth. I mean, Carmen, what, could you talk about that? Sure. I mean, this is sort of the problem, right? When like you belong to a group of people who are underrepresented in media where when you, when something comes along, you want it to be good. You want to like it because you're like, this is like, right. This is the moment. Um, and so I, I mean, I remember seeing the trailer being like, okay, 
okay, all right, um, maybe, but I will go see it because I, I want, I mean, there's this idea, I don't know, there's like sort of this frustrating element of like, you know, I read an article, I think it was from last year, where they had researched that like, um, you know, movies with more diverse casts make more money. And yet, and yet they, they don't get made as often. Um, and I, I guess there's just sort of this weird thing where it's like, I want like capitalism to do something good for once. And I want like there to be like a groundswell of support for this movie. And then people will be like, oh, wow, we can have like, you know, all these different kinds of characters be the centers of movies. And it's, and it's, and it's, you know, um, and then want to make more of them. But then you have this problem where like, that's actually already been done. And yet it doesn't really help. So there's this really just frustrating thing as like, you know, a person who wants to see a movie where it's like you, you want that money to get kind of thrown into it. You're like, I want to have choices. Um, like I want to be like, oh man, there's like three movies with like all female cast this weekend. Like, how do I pick, you know, like, how do I pick which one to go see this night? Um, and yet, so, so yeah, so I feel like I, I just really want, I, I want to love this movie and I do, like, I really did, I did enjoy it very much, but like, I think I, I wasn't feeling crazy about it from the trailer, but I was like, I'm going to go see it. You know, it's going to happen. Like, I'm going to go pay for my ticket. I'm going to go because like, I want to support it. Um, yeah. And I guess I also just wanted to say, you know, regarding like this sort of controversy is- issue, like, I mean, I don't really have a lot to say to those, those dudes. Um, because I really honestly, like, I sort of like check them out of my mind. Like, I don't really think about them very much because they're just so awful. But I do think it's really interesting, this idea that like, a movie made in 1984 is like a sacred text that cannot be like, reinterpreted or rethought about or recast or reboot or, you know, the idea is just so strange to me. It, it just seems so against, you know, like art and how art works, right? That a text is like a fixed, immovable thing that can never be reimagined in any way. And I find that idea so strange. And I, I think it's really interesting that like, this is a hill that certain, certain kinds of men, that's the hill they want to die on is like, <laughs> you know, that like Ghostbusters in 1984 is a perfect <laughs> fixed text that can never be reinterpreted ever again. And it's like, all right, if that's, if that's the hill you want to die on, that's fine. But like, yes. very weird. But we're going to go and do it anyway. So right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if I can chime in, a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah, I'm done. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. So, uh, I saw the first trailer and I was underwhelmed, but I wanted to go and see it because, unfortunately, I have that. I still have what I like to call the "wait your turn" um problematic ideal stuck in the back of my head. Whereas, oh, here I get a movie with women as Ghostbusters and there's the token black woman. So is this going to be representative of history where women with multiple marginalizations, women of color, women with disabilities, trans women, working class women, poor women, are we, now that white women have had their turn, do we get our turn next? And it's, it's a, it is a problematic ideal to have. So for the longest time, I really wasn't going to go see the new movie because it was very much, you know what, fuck this wait your turn shit. There are other movies I could be seeing that do feature women with multiple marginalizations. At the same time, looking at the backlash that this movie was getting just because there were women wearing and using proton packs. I had that, I had that self-hating wait your turn ideal idea come up and surface within me. And am I glad that my money went to the movie? Yes, because, and this is why. Because the Easter egg at the end gave me that little spark of hope that maybe in the next movie, I won't have to wait my turn. Can we discuss the Easter egg? Yeah, sure. Spoilers! <laughs> so, yeah, Carol, do you want to say something about the Easter egg? Um, I left before the credits. <laughs> oh. My bladder was screaming. I had to leave. <laughs> so do you not know what it is, or did you read up on it later? I do not know what it is. Are we spoiling? Yeah, yeah, Please. do it. Go ahead. I would love it. I would love to hear it. 
Okay, so you remember the recording device that Holtzman and Abby used to play a prank on uh, air? Yes. So in the Easter egg, right at the end, you see Patty listening to the recording device, and she's like, hmm, hmm. And the ladies go up to her, and they said, well, what's wrong? Do you hear anything? And Patty just looks at them all, and she said, what's Zool? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I shrieked. I shrieked at the end of the movie. And people are looking around me like, huh? I want to be like, get out. Get out right now. <laughs> get out. It's like, it's the gatekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel so much better about the movie now. <laughs> and, and, yeah. So that's why, like, the Easter egg. Will, like, fuck this waiting turns. I want to see all types of women in the sequel. All types of women. Get it better, Paul Fig. Get it, make it better. The sequels where Patty and Holtzman get together, right? Like I've yes! always that. <laughs> yes! I'm reading that script right now. Like, <laughs> you want to see Patty as the gatekeeper and Holtzman as the key master? <laughs> oh, my, oh my God! Oh, don't toy with my oh, emotion. <laughs> don't don't toy with my emotion. <laughs> I feel like that fanfic has already been written. Like I feel like you just willed it into existence. It exists now in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Kate McKinnon, forever.blogspot.com. That's my site. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we actually know there's going to be a sequel definitely? Like, has that... I, no. I, we don't I don't know. think okay. so. Oh, yeah. I mean, how much, Angela, how much money would this have to make, you think, to, like, justify a sequel? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have to... Um, I think it would probably have to make, like... I mean, I have no idea how who makes decisions in studios, but like probably 150, 200, like you know what I mean. And I mean, internationally, like maybe like it's not going to open in China. We've already established that, which is where a lot of box office comes from now. Um, but I mean, it, I mean, it could do well on DVD. It could actually end up doing better in theaters than like you know, than maybe people had had thought if it has a long enough a long enough run. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I really hope there could be a sequel, but also I. I I feel like it might be a little bit of a long shot, but, you know, well, time will tell. Well, what's the deal with it not opening in China? Because that's, I saw that they don't like ghost movies or something. It seems yeah, weird. Yeah, there's something about, like, the things that have, um, uh, things that have, like, superstition and, and things like that. They don't, um, they don't always let those, ha those open in China. I can actually... I'll find out. Um, Actually, uh, according to Wikipedia, it cost $144 million to make. And uh, I don't know if that includes all of the budget, like advertising. So I think it needs to earn in excess of $150 million in order to be considered for a sequel. Um, yeah. Uh, censorship guidelines in China prohibit showing of films that promote cults or superstition. Which, ah. you know... It is promoting the cult of Kate McKinnon, but other than that... <laughs> <laughs> it just seems weird, because I, I, I don't remember really hearing that before. And it just makes me wonder, is that really the reason, or I don't know? Or is it something else, or... Yeah, I mean, is it one of those things that they sort of selectively, you know, impose, whether or not, you know... I mean, because I feel like there have been other movies that... I mean, I guess it would be cults or superstition, but, like, there's tons of monster movies and stuff like that. Like, if you think about Ghost more as monsters than you know specters in the night like I don't, I don't know exactly how they're drawing the lines of what cults and superstition I, mean, I might be making this up but i feel like pacific rim made a huge percentage of its take in china which pacific rim did make a huge percentage of its take in china but we're also dealing pacific rim is also dealing very much with uh themes from anime so that's a completely different story and those are those are monsters in the very strictest sense, but like very much ancient Chinese, ancient Japanese mythology monsters that we see rising from the rim. So there's, there's that. But I, I don't, I don't know personally enough about Chinese culture or the gov current government that is sitting in power to make any statement otherwise. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, what do you guys just think of this idea of taking familiar properties from the 80s, say, or whatever, and gender swapping them in general? Do you think, is that a direction, would you like to see them do that with more movies? I love that idea. Yeah. All female Goonies? Is that what you're telling me we yeah. can? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Goonies never say, uh, it's a 
depends. It really depends because not everything that has been taken from the 80s and remade, gender swapped or no, has been good. Cough, cough, gem. Oh my God, I can't believe I said it out loud. Cough, cough. Um, <laughs> and also, there, there are a lot of things that need to be updated for context. Like, I did, I did especially appreciate in the new Ghostbusters how um, they updated the culture of New York, how they integrated social media and YouTube, and they updated the devices. Well, and that they couldn't afford to rent a firehouse. Yes, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like how ridiculous the prices are. Like, I, I appreciated it from that perspective. But here's the thing. If you are going to gender swap or even a race swap, you can't do it in a vacuum. You have to take into consideration the how being a woman, or especially being a woman of color, or being a queer slash woman slash person of color in an environment like, I don't know, let's say Los Angeles is going to be different now than it was back in 1987, like, say, if they wanted to do Troop Beverly Hills again. I mean, I sort of feel like they seem determined to, to reboot every single franchise, board game, comic <laughs> book, novel, you know, like, ever created. Like, I feel like we're just, like, on the, in that direction, so... But totally not Thundercats! That. Where's my Thundercats? Just give it time, <laughs> just give it time. But, but I sort of feel like if they're going to do it, if they're determined to do it, why not do it with, I mean, g gender or race swapping or any of those, you know, why not do it in an interesting way? While, of course, like Jennifer said, like, taking into account, you know, like, what it means to be various folks. Um, so I, I sort of feel like, I, I'm sort of pro, I don't know, I feel like it's just, like, inherent, like, just, like, queer the text, you know? And I mean queer in, like, sort of a more, like, sort of universal sense, like, just, like, queer, like, you, like, make the text, like, take the text and, like, if you're gonna redo it, just, like, mess with it, you know, and, like, add new things. Like, 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 think about it in some new and interesting way instead of just, like, rebooting it. I did also just want to talk a little bit more about the humor in this movie because I was really cracking up for about the first third of the movie, and I noticed I was laughing a lot less toward the end. And I just had one other observation I want to make about the, the humor in this versus the original Ghostbusters because I felt like in the original... This is something I saw in a review, but... I agree with this. It said that in the original Ghostbusters, you had the wacky characters and you had, then you had the non-wacky characters. Um, so like the Sigourney Weaver character in the original is not a wacky character, you know, I guess until she gets possessed a little bit. But, you know, they're, they're sort of like fairly normal people. And I felt like in this movie, pretty much every character is a wacky character down to like, you know, bit characters and walk-ons and stuff. And I felt that this might have had a little bit more sense of reality if there had been a little, you know, just some more non-wacky characters around. Yeah, I agree. I found a lot of the characters just very unrealistic. Like the uh the, and and that's a strange thing to be complaining about in a in a movie about ghost busting, <laughs> you know, but but there it is. I you know the the graffiti artist, like I, I don't know why Patty didn't I, I don't know what kind of authority the MTA has, but can't she you know give him a citation or something. Right. He seems to come there often enough. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think that's also, there was that chemistry of all of the different comedian, com com comedy styles that you saw in the first movie that you didn't really see in the new movie. I mean, like, you know, Harold Ramis had very much the dry, very dry, very intellectual comedy going. You know, Bill Murray had very much the dry sarcastic comedy going a little wacky and then uh dan Aykroyd had that very upbeat very upbeat and very almost sort of childish in that beautiful naive way and i didn't really see that sort of chemistry of different comedic styles in the new ghostbusters that i saw in the first ghostbusters and i was kind of hoping to see that but yeah no that's i think that's a legitimate criticism is that it's almost as if they were trying to have too many of these same characters, which in writing fiction, that's a big no-no. 
Your character should not be interchangeable like that. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know why Chris Hemsworth was there. I mean, I do, because hashtag female gaze. But otherwise, I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> uh, actually, for me, the biggest one of the biggest problems I had with this movie was the reverse sexism of this character, Kevin, being hired and kept on for his, for his looks. And had this been four men hiring a hot woman, I'd be protesting that as well. But isn't that, isn't that sort of the, that's sort of the thing though, right? Like that's the inversion. I mean, it's, I, I don't, I mean, reverse sexism, like the, the joke is that if you had it reversed, like that, that, like that, that stereotype exists reversed all the time. And so the movie was reversing the stereotype. Right. But they weren't playing that straight. Like that was clearly like a, a, a wink to an existing problematic trope that exists. It was definitely a wink to an existing problematic trope, but we can't apply the same reverse sexism there because it reverse sexism doesn't really exist because we don't have the power of the institution, you know, to, but yeah, but I could totally tell that they were playing up on the trope. But this thing was, I was having the same thing. Like, why are you here? It was so unnecessary to the story. Yeah. yeah. And that was definitely one of the ways where I would say Paul Feig do better. Yeah, um, you were saying that, uh, did you think this movie was funny? Actually, I, I loved the first scene. I thought that was really funny. And it had one of my movies, the movie's absolute favorite lines of mine, which is, you know, hi, hi, look at this old house. It had many features of the time, like a fence to keep the Irish out. <laughs> that had me laughing yeah the face for day and yeah the face for day and the anti-irish security fence had me laughing and i'm like oh god in but it was still that guilty laugh where it's like oh this would not have been funny in the 50s you know that yeah but but that's i thought that's why it was funny now. I mean, do, do, do you guys agree that this movie was hysterical for about 30 minutes and then it was kind of yeah sort yeah. of funny yeah i wouldn't say the first 30 minutes even i i I didn't, I liked it in the beginning. It kind of dropped for me and then it picked up steam later. I mean, but I, I really wanted to champion this movie, you know, re reverse gender. I mean, it's playing with gender that could be so interesting. But for me, the reason I can't champion it is because it's just not funny enough. I was really, I was really saying, and I think a lot of it has to do with there's, there's just this. The ladies don't seem to spend as much time together as the original Ghostbusters did not Ghostbustering. You know what I'm saying? It, it seemed like in the original Ghostbustering, you saw a lot more of Pete, Winston, Ray, and Egon hang, still being in the office, but hanging out and or working and having other conversations. Whereas I didn't really see a lot of that. So I didn't feel a group chemistry develop. And I like, I, I would have loved to champion this movie, but unfortunately I can't for very many reasons. I think it was funny from the get go. Yes, I think it started out strong, but it did kind of fall apart in that it in many, it fell apart in many, many ways, but in what you're saying, Dave, is that I think that it wasn't funny because that chemistry hadn't been established. Well, like, for example, I mean, the whole arc of the plot is, is supposed to be, I think, that Aaron and Abby's friendship is estranged at the beginning, and then uh, Aaron makes this huge, she risks her life jumping into the portal at the ends to save Abby as, as the symbol that their friendship has been reforged. And I felt like that, that that was not, had not been set up well enough throughout the movie to have a big emotional yeah. impact at the end. Yeah, to go back to what we were saying before, like, I I do want to see the two and a half hours. Yes. Because yeah. I feel like there was probably yeah. more flessing out of relationships. There was probably more you know, like establishing, you know, who Patty was and who Holtz was and, you know, like maybe not having them just be, you know, jokes the whole time. Like they're, I think that they're probably, I hope that there is actually that longer version of it, um, you know, where we kind of get some, some more of those, those answers that we can. I mean, I would watch like a four about. hour version of that movie. I, <laughs> I, I sat through David Lynch's four hour version of Dune. I can sit through a four hour version yeah. of the new Ghostbusters. No problem. But yeah. yeah, I'm all about that. 
All right, so so the the Rotten Tomatoes ratings for the original Ghostbusters has it at ninety seven percent. It has this at seventy five percent, and Ghostbusters two at fifty percent. And I'm just curious what you guys think of those ratings. We're really going to talk about Ghostbusters two. The that shall not be named. <laughs> I mean, does anyone strongly disagree with those ratings, or do those sound about right? I don't know if the original Ghostbusters deserves that high. Um, because I haven't seen it recently, and I remember thinking some things were strange. Oh, right, right. I remember thinking Walter Peck actually had some points. Yeah! <laughs> like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This this is kind of an unlawful thing that they're doing and could be dangerous to the city and perhaps should be studied more carefully. So I, I actually felt a little more sympathetic <laughs> towards Peck the second time. Not the second, you know, the 50th time <laughs> around, but seeing it as uh, a much more sophisticated adult. <laughs> So. I actually heard that 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 actor became so uh, hated as a result of playing that role that it was actually kind of dangerous for him to walk around on the street after the movie came out. That really? people hated that character so much. <laughs> oh my! Well, it didn't help that he was also the newscaster in the first Die Hard, who exposed. Was yeah, William, I'm, William Atherton. Yeah, he was the newscaster in Die Hard who exposes, um, who exposes Mrs. McLean to Hans Gruber. So that probably didn't help either. <laughs> Again, like, there are so many 80s movies I could talk about. Like, if they want to do a Die Hard reboot and gender swap it, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to pick up on the thing about the Ghostbusters maybe in the first movie maybe being irresponsible nerds. Because I saw a review that made the really interesting point that in a way the villain in this new movie is kind of like a reflection of the Ghostbusters from the original movie. This kind of like nerd who is not you know not taking adequate safety precautions and that you know that, that back when the in 1984 the nerds were always the underdogs and it was very easy to root for the nerds and in the intervening years we've seen kind of the dark side of nerds and megalomaniacal nerds and their you know tech startups and stuff like that and i thought that was a really interesting observation that the the new movie is interrogating the old movie in in that way as well I mean, it's an interesting observation, but I still find it weak because in the original Ghostbusters, well, at least in the new Ghostbusters, the antagonist knew that what he was doing, he knew what he was doing was unsafe, you know, and he bluntly states it repeatedly as his method to end the world. Whereas in the original Ghostbusters, these are, you know, these are trained scientists who are doing things that may or may not be safe, but they don't have the malicious intent behind it. Okay, but you don't think the new movie was making any commentary about the dark side of nerds and nerd culture? Oh, no, no. I definitely think it was making the uh, commentary on the dark side of nerd culture. Um, and. There's no question about it, especially, like you said, little white dude in a basement, you know, on the internet, trolling. Like, they, they had a literal troll as their antagonist. It sort of seemed, I think, what like the difference is, like, intention versus not intention. Because there's a difference between, like, doing something that's really dangerous and being like, you know, forget the consequences. But, like, he wasn't doing that. He was like, I am going to bring about this situation. You know, he was, like, really intentional about what he was doing. Right, no, there, there's no question that, that this guy is bad in a way that the original Ghostbusters weren't bad. I just thought it was an interesting observation that the antagonist in this movie is the nerdy guy in his basement with the ghost machine. Right, And those right. were the heroes mm -hmm. in the first movie. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny as I kept thinking um, after I left the theater, I was thinking about that season of Buffy. Um, oh, with, with the, the trio? <laughs> Yeah, the yeah, trio. The trio. And like, oh, God. And I was thinking about, like, that sort of commentary on, like, the dark side of, of sort of that, that misogynistic edge to, like, mis to certain kinds of nerd culture. Um, I don't really much more to say than that. I just was, I was, I've been thinking about it ever since I saw it last night. I was like, oh, that's sort of, like, similar kind of to that season of Buffy. Oh, it definitely is similar. The good thing is that at least since we're setting up this dichotomy, that at least in the new Ghostbusters, we actually get to see that, like, oh, no, actually, there are lots of great nerds who uh, want to, you know, push boundaries and be inclusive, or hopefully, even though they don't really present 
well as we've discussed earlier doing that but it is it's very much setting up like this sort this dichotomy about the dark side of nerdum and i mean like i don't know i i personally have issues of fixing nerdum to a dichotomy like that and i'm not saying that it doesn't exist but a lot of what a lot of the behavior that we see in Rowan or Roland, Roland, I think is what his name is. That could have happened regardless of being attached to a specific fandom. Like that darkness could have come out in anything. But I, I do feel like it's sort of about weaponizing knowledge, right? Like that's the idea is that like, I feel like, you know, historically we thought of like nerds, you know, this is like a press group and like knowledge was something like laughable. Like there was like sort of nerds and jocks, right? And again, like, yeah, and all dichotomies are like false essentially, right? But thinking about like, you know, weaponizing, you know, artillery or weaponizing physical brute strength or power and like knowledge was like sort of this, like this idea like, oh, it's this pure thing. And like, if you attain knowledge, like you can use it. And I think the idea that like knowledge can also be weaponized is like a really specific and important thing and i'm not saying this movie was like making that point in any unique or interesting way different than like other sort of kinds of things have but i just think that's i think that that's sort of the for me what feels like that interesting element of like talking about what we are calling like the dark side of of, of, of nerddom um and especially with the dark side of nerddom so i have i have issues with calling nerds an oppressed group were they a bully group definitely but there isn't there was no like overlying political system that beat down on them and i do appreciate melissa mccarthy's actually saying that like okay you got bullied a lot you were bullied not not so much dismissing his feelings but acknowledging that like you were bullied a lot there were lots of terrible people but they managed to not you know blow up the city and you know full of ghosts so that i especially appreciated because there have been so many people online who are trying to grab on to being a nerd as being a marginalized group and that's that's not how that's not what being marginalized is i'm not sure i agree 100 percent with what you're saying because i mean i was really under the threat of being beaten up pretty much on a daily basis just for being verbal and literate and and i grew up in a world i mean of course i was a teen in the 80s this this uh jocks versus nerds uh war really did exist at least in the world that i was raised in and i was very much uh struggling to survive all right so, oh. so guys this is an interesting conversation but we're at 90 minutes i feel like we need to, oh. this is like a whole new can of worms that we're gonna could, could go on for another hour yeah then then, uh, then please don't. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, so, no, I mean, it's interesting, but I think we should probably need to start wrapping this up now. Um, so uh, just on the subject of the new Ghostbusters movie or the impact it's going to have or what you're hoping to see, any, anyone have any final thoughts about that? So, uh, so Angela, what do you think? Final, final thoughts about the legacy or something about this Ghostbusters movie? Um, I, I enjoyed it. I did laugh. It obviously was lacking. But um, since we've been having this conversation, I'm now saying Patty and Holtz forever. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I'm gonna think. The only thing I'm gonna leave on. All right, cool. And Carmen, final final thoughts. Uh, Patty and Holtz forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hashtag now. Yeah. <laughs> I know that I. I just I, I did enjoy it, and th- this has been a really great conversation. Um. I'm, I'm glad that it exists and I look forward, I hope a sequel happens and I look forward to them sort of tackling the problems of the first and like giving us even new and more amazing stuff to work with and, and to, to look, to watch. So yeah, looking forward to that. Hopefully it'll happen. Uh, Carol. Um, I thought it was fun and funny, but not fun and funny enough. Unfortunately, uh, I, the movie I wanted to see wasn't the movie I got to see. And I wanted to see a movie of like 32 years later. This is the world that the Ghostbusters left behind. And, and, you know, this is what the world is like now. And here are these scientists researching it. Well, I mean, they've made this ghost core. And it's, I think it's going to be like Star Wars, where they're going to be cranking out all sorts of Ghostbusters, you know, material. So I, I wouldn't give up hope that you'll see a continuation of the, the Ghostbusters Prime universe. Okay. okay. Uh, Jennifer, any final words? Um, so I'm getting on the hashtag Patty Holtzman Forever crew, um, obviously. Um, 
I walked into this movie uh, hoping that my own, that my personal uh, views of what I saw on the trailers regarding Patty weren't tr going to be true. Unfortunately, they were. I'm still hoping that the director's cut will do something to clear that up where we'll see Patty as a much more nuanced character. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't laugh because, again, Kate McKinnon, oh my God, she is, she's absolutely wonderful. Um, but the somebody asked me what I thought about it, and I said, well, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. And if they have the opportunity to make a sequel, I'm hoping that they will address uh, everything that we've talked about. And I know that there are a couple of things that a lot of us haven't had a chance to talk about. I'm hoping that they will use that sequel as an opportunity to do better. You know, do better. Because all different, we have so many different types of little girls out there with different experiences, different marginalizations. And I hope that if they can, you know, I hope that if they have the opportunity to make a sequel, like, I would love to see a queer woman of color with a disability who is a Ghostbuster. So I know I have at least three friends who can look up there and start crying and say, that's me. That's my story. That's what I would like to see out of the sequel. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Angela Watercutter, Carol Pinchevsky, Jennifer Cross, and Carmen Maria Machado. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Angela Watercutter, Carmen Maria Machado, Jennifer Cross, and Carol Pinchevsky for joining us on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a small contribution via PayPal over at geekskyshow.com slash crowdfunding. That's what listener Arthur Brown does every time he hears an episode that he particularly enjoys. He sent us his latest bonus payment after listening to our conversation in episode 209 about the late great science fiction author Ian M. Banks. Arthur writes that the episode was, quote, better than a seance. So big thanks to Arthur Brown for his continued support. And if you just can't be bothered to go through all the hassle of making individual contributions to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, why not make it easier on yourself by signing up to give us an automatic payment for each episode over at patreon.com geeks. Almost 200 listeners are currently supporting us on Patreon, and almost 150 have supported us via PayPal. So big thanks to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.